Hey everybody, Clint Fosloo here and welcome to the 33rd edition of the Clint Fosloo podcast series. And today's episode is entitled Finding Food Freedom with Eric Edmeads from Wildfoot. Now, for those who've been following my journey, uh, you know, last year was a massive year for me, both from a personal growth, but also from a health perspective. And, you know, happy to stumble across Wildfoot uh, late one night while watching infomercials, not infomercials by scanning YouTube. And it has had such a huge shift in my life that's been uh, fascinating. So Eric was the founder of Wildfoot, or is the founder of Wildfoot, and in this podcast, as always, we go through a bit of his life story, his backstory in terms of you know where he grew up as a kid, and obviously the South African connection, in terms of his first business, um, selling vacuum cleaners, who would have thought into sort of having a special effects company, you know, that got bought up by Lucas Films, and, and all the amazing and fascinating things uh, that has, has happened in his life. Also, a really crazy story of how he met Tony Robbins and got to speak with Tony Robbins and share a stage for a number of years. I think the key thing here is obviously around the health and nutrition stuff and around food psychology and food freedom as it's alluded to in Wildfoot. It is such a fundamental part of the program and something that, you know, until I stumbled across Wildfoot, I didn't know existed. And it really puts you in a position of, you know, seeing certain foods that were your, I guess, your your, your go-to snacks or you go to rubbish as you don't even see them as foods anymore. So we, you know, dive into the psychology behind that and Eric obviously you know, in, in the way that he does explains how the methodology came about and the whole journey of how Wildfoot started as a side gig uh, in terms of the global brand that it is today. If you are struggling with, you know, body image issues, energy issues, weight issues, um, I have a new class coming up 1st of March, which I'm super excited about. Um, if you listen to this podcast later, then just go to my website, clintfoster.com forward slash Wildfoot to find out when the latest group class is or the one-on-one -on -one class as well. I just want to thank Eric once again so much for his time. I know he's an unbelievably busy man. Just a heads up to everyone that there may be one or two or maybe four or five minutes talking about kite surfing. It's a passion that we both share. So I know you're absolutely going to love this one. Strap in, enjoy, and we'll see you on the other side. Clint Fosley here and welcome to the 33rd edition of the Clint Fosley podcast and for those watching you may be shocked that's not my bio biological age but just the podcast number and today we're joined by Eric Edmeads. Eric welcome to the podcast. Hey thanks for having me good to see you. So super excited about today's podcast. Um, the title of today's podcast is Finding Food Freedom with Eric obviously the founder of Wildfoot. Now Wildfoot has significantly changed my life um, in more ways than I'd like to admit or I would love to admit um, and, you know, for the 17 people I'm coaching already and it's changing their lives as well. So I'm really honored to have Eric on the podcast. You know, what you've created with Wildfoot's amazing and, and I'm you know, honored to be, you know, sharing that and helping people. So thanks once again for finding the time, Matt. Very, very welcome. And, and thanks also for getting it out into the world. It's, it's important work we're doing. Cool. Now, I think the most important thing we need to cover today is A, is the wind blowing and B, are you going to go kite surfing? Uh, the wind it was blowing furiously yesterday, yeah. um, but no, I, I'm, I'm in interviews all day today, so no kiting today. Oh, oh yeah, okay. Are you, are you in the DR at the moment? Yep. Yeah. Okay, cool. I, so could, I, could pretty much, I could pretty much throw cutlery from my back window and land in the ocean. Nice. Yeah, I, I had a, if, if I'm glugging a coconut water, I had a big day on the water here. We had good wind, so it was a <laughs> bit flushed by the cheeks, so that's, that's, that's a good day in the sea. 
Brilliant. So Eric, just in terms of the podcast, I mean, we obviously want to get down the journey of Wildfoot, but I, as I always like to do to frame a podcast, just a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, um, you know, obviously I know the story. So just a, a quick cliff note summary, where you grew up and then obviously you'll move to North America and how that all sort of started. Well, to start with, like this is important. We have to get that out. of <laughs> um, I, my, my family is well and truly uh, South African. My, my, uh, my mom's last name is Dutoy and her mom's last name is uh, Van Veik. Like, you know, we're, we're, we're talking wagon train people here. That's amazing. Bro. I'm, I'm a Fosli, so there are three Vs there. It's, so it's, there yeah, you go. There yeah. you go. So I, um, uh, my parents, um, let's say, had a difference of opinion with the South African government of the early 70s, as many people did. And, and they even more significantly had a difference of opinion about mandatory military service in Angola. So they started looking for ways to get out and get me out. And, um, and so we immigrated to Canada when I was quite small, but we maintained a really close relationship with the South Africa. I still, in many respects, feel more South African than I, than I do Canadian, which is odd when you hear my accent, I suppose. But <laughs> um, I grew up in Canada then. And, you know, I went through like, you know, I went through the perfect childhood to make the rest of life easier. Uh, things were tough, the alcoholism and divorce and all that kind of stuff that one goes through. And, um, and when I left school, I, um, I went straight into the workforce and really focused um, on sales and marketing as a career choice. And uh, there were a lot of reasons for that. I, 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 there were some family reasons why it was very difficult for me to go to university. And, and so I just jumped into work. And then I got into entrepreneurship. I started my first business at 27, which was wireless networking and, and data capture solutions for retail and logistics yeah. and warehouse management. And that was based in England because I'd relocated there by then. Yeah. And I sold that business some years later. Uh, I spent two years traveling the world trying to find myself. Um, I, I checked in Bali, I checked in Thailand, I, I, I looked in Singapore, I, I checked in California. It turned out I was there in all those places. And there's there a came a point. You went to there. Sorry? There's a couple of dangerous places you went to there to find yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in, in the end, I, um, uh, I got back into business. I bought a Hollywood special effects company in Northern California and, and worked on movies like Avatar and Pirates of the Caribbean. And yeah, it just it really had a really interesting time doing all that stuff. But um, underneath all of that, from the age of 21, I've had a burning curiosity and um, uh, passion for nutrition and health because I went through such a big health turnaround on my own in my 20s. And so while I was doing all these other things, my hobby, my, my deepest passion, my, my most continual reading and listening and research had to do with Two, two basic things, nutrition as it related to evolution and, and human history and food psychology as it related to why is it people don't change when they know they should and how can I help them with that? And, and that led, that culminated with me starting WildFit about seven years ago and it now spreading around the world. So, so the way, I mean, just, just want to pull back from a, you know, a, a kid perspective growing up in North America. I, I spent quite a bit of time in, in the US and I just understand what the, you know, the classic American diets like. Um, I'm assuming you had the, the, the classic North American upbringing or because of the South African heritage where you, you know, having the, the, the bit more, you know, the puff and flace, the meat and veg kind of diet or where was your nutrition in those early days? Yeah, you know, I, I think in some respects, I got the best of both worlds. And then I also got the worst of both worlds. Mm. So, you know, the, 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 uh, um, uh, you know, the, the typical sort of uh, meat and veg thing was a consistent theme in our life that did come from, so, you know, we, we, we certainly um, built on and, 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 and lamb chops. I mean, as a matter of fact, 
I remember my parents, like back then, lamb chops weren't really a thing. Lamb really wasn't a thing in Canada. And my, but, but you could get it. But, and, and my parents introduced all their friends to lamb chops and it became this, holy cow, why didn't we know about this earlier? Um, so that was part of it. But then there were other things that happened. Like um, my, my parents, my mom had this old cookbook that she inherited from her mom. And, and I remember like page 78 was pancakes or panacook. And, and, and uh, you know, and, and they, they, they were the, you know, French crepe style traditional, what we, what we called for our friends, South African pancakes. But here, Clint, this is where I one of my, made one of my first food rule discoveries is that the rule was if it rained on a Sunday, then we would make pancakes. If it rained on a Sunday, then we would make pancakes. This is a great rule if you live in Johannesburg because it rains like on a Sunday twice a year, you know, like, it, but the minute you move to Eastern Canada, it rains every damn Sunday. So, you know, you start eating pancakes. And, and so it's a weird thing how the food rule from one region just is not safe in another. Yeah. And so I kind of did grow up with some, some of the good, you know, wholesome traditional stuff, but then also got introduced to North American fast food and, and, and count and sugar and all that stuff. Yeah. So I have to show you this. I was actually with one of my, with my trial class, I don't know if you can see that. That is Burvos. Yeah. So I, it's actually Aldi, the German supermarket, make Burvos here. And oh, so I was cool. showing them the sugar content of it just because we were going through Sugar Week. So I was like, you know, this is when you're living Wildfit, this is what you can have. <laughs> so it's a very, very much a part of my life as well. So that's, that's Clint, you know, recently I had this company reach out to me, small family owned business, and they make Biltong in America. And it's, and, and they sent me some samples. They arrived about a week ago. They're really, really good. So I'm having a conversation with them about formulating a sort of Wildfit uh, branded Biltong because it's a, such a perfect snack. It's amazing. And, and in South Africa, I mean, I've been here seven and a half years now, like every petrol station or every gas station's got built on affordably. You know, you yeah. come here, it's about a hundred dollars a kilogram. So you're like, Oh, you know, you, you want it, but it's just uh, not an affordable yeah. snack where compared to back there, it was just the go-to. It was amazing. Yeah. Anyway, we can talk about South African cuisine all day. Right. So from a, from a, from a sale, I'm just very intrigued because, you know, I mean, everyone like myself included the way you deliver a message and the way you've, formulated wildfoot's brilliant when you know obviously from what i've understood you you know you got into the nlp stuff the psychology of all, all, all this of the of human sort of change what led you coming out of school to go into the sales and marketing was it just you had a natural ability to talk or what, what was it that actually took you on that path in the beginning you know i i think i didn't have a natural I was terrified of speaking and selling and that kind of stuff. Um, terrified of that. Very shy and that sort of stuff. But I also had a burning entrepreneurial spirit. I had it as a kid. I, I, I had lemonade stands. When the snow came down, I shoveled sidewalks for money. In the fall, when the leaves were falling, I was out there. I mean, all the neighbors knew me. Like yeah. all of me. I, I got whatever shyness I had. It was over when my entrepreneurial spirit kicked in. I was knocking on those doors and, and, and making money. And so when I left school, I really didn't know what to do. Um, you know, there was a quirky thing in Canada about like, if you're, if you're wealthy enough, you can't qualify for student loans. But if you're not well, like it was this, I was in this middle place where I just couldn't get there. And so I started looking at the job market and trying to figure out what's next for me. And of course, I'd had traditional high school jobs like pumping gas and that kind of stuff. But, you know, now it was like, what's next? And I answered this ad in the paper for a sales job and it was a blind ad. So it didn't tell you what the company was or what you're going to be selling. And it was a it was a door to door vacuum company. I'm like, I knocked on the door and I, I got there and they gave us this interview and they sold us all this opportunity. And I thought, well, I got nothing better at the moment. I'm going to try this. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it ended up being, I, I got to tell you, two and a half years of that, I, I can't think of any university degree that would teach you more usable, practical, you know, solid life skills than that experience. So I was working 16 hours a day, six days a week. Uh, you know, if I didn't, if I didn't hunt, I didn't eat, like it was a real lesson in life. And that's where I kind of got introduced to sales. And that's where I realized there was a massive difference between motivation and transformation. Mm. And, and, and so I, we would bring in these, the, the company would bring in these motivational speakers and they were great. I remember this one guy, Larry Nichols. I still remember his name, super funny, super inspiring. You know, you really wanted to get out there and make things happen. But the next day when you got to work, ah, it was gone, right? It was, it was like, it was this temporary high. And I, one day, um, my, my boss uh, uh, must, I don't know, he must have been up at three o'clock in the morning watching infomercials because he ended up buying the, one of Tony Robbins' original like tape programs. Remember yeah. Clint tapes? Right? No, I, I, man, I can, I can rewind a tape with a pencil. Don't you worry. Should we, should we put a definition on the <laughs> broadcast? You know, for all the kids, you know, no one knows who, what tapes are, right? But, yeah. but anyway, I, I started listening to Tony Robbins on those mm -hmm. tapes and I noticed something about his delivery style. And that was that he, he taught stuff in such a way that the next day I naturally did it. Yeah. I, 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 and, and so I became really fascinated by the difference between education or motivation and full on integrated um, transformation. And I, I really started devoting my time to studying it. So as you mentioned, I studied NLP, yeah. I studied hypnosis, behavioral change, uh, behavioral psychology. And I didn't know that I was going to apply that to food. I was just, the, I was doing business mentoring and stuff. So I, and sales, I thought it would be helpful, but, when I applied it to food principles, holy, did things change. Yeah, amen. <laughs> yeah, amen. I actually, I, I posted a picture up on actually my Instagram yesterday. My daughter had a, you know, the classic iPhone memory a year ago today. And there's a picture of me passed out on the plane next to her. And she says like, dad, I didn't rec. that's not you. Like, I didn't recognize that person. Like, who is that person there? Yeah. Yeah. I probably would have, you know, been in the lounge, had a couple of beers and passed out <laughs> before a flight, right? That's who that person was. So it's crazy, man. Um, just yeah, and you know, we, we hear stories like that, obviously all the time. And, 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 and it's, it's striking because, you know, somebody can go on a crash course, willpower diet and starve themselves. But you know, the difference is people go, God, you look sick. Yeah. But when people, when their body goes to their natural weight through health, rather than through restriction and diet and torture, then they look great. And that's, you know, that's, that's one of the mo things that's most gratifying about helping people. Yeah. And, and the thing for me, you know, cause from, from my, my journey as an ex-competitive rugby player, like I wasn't meant to have body image issues, right? I wasn't meant to have weight issues. I was just a big guy in quotes. All, all of this is in a lot of air quotes. And, you know, I had this 23 year battle that was, I mean, I was married for 20 years. My ex-wife didn't even know about it. You know, I had this secret demon on my shoulder that, and tried when I say everything, like every diet, every exercise routine, um, you know, I'm a pretty extreme human being. So I used to try burn 2000 calories a day additional, you know, just to try achieve what I wanted to achieve. And I couldn't get there. And it was, yeah. and it's, and it's pretty soul destroying when you do everything to the best of your ability, you know, and, being a detail-oriented human being, read every textbook, read all the science, and just couldn't crack the code um, until obviously, you know, obviously why we've done the, the podcast. But it's it's amazingly, it's 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 just relieving, mate. It's just it's just it's just the way the way I sum up Wildford is it's the it's you've it's the Da Vinci Code. Like you've cracked the code, and it's just so easy and so maintainable. One way that I've been trying to describe this to people is let, let's say you're running a company. 
Yeah. And you want the company to increase profits. So you can push on the numbers. Yep. You can push on the revenue and you can push on the costs. But if you push on the revenue too hard, the wrong way, you're going to burn out the market and it's not going to work. You're going to, and if you push too hard on the cost, your quality is going to go down. This is what happens to people when they try to lose weight. They push on the numbers, they push on the calories, they push on the scale, they push on the numbers. But if you go into that same company and you work on the culture, if you go into that same company and you work on the culture and the psychology of the marketing people and the salespeople and you work on better messaging, then the company can go through an incredible increase in profitability and retention and people stay there longer and so forth. The company's healthier. And so by working on the company's health, the company's profit goes up. And so in a very real sense, that's what we do at WildFit that's so different is rather than pushing on the numbers, we're pushing on the self. We're pushing on the, the change of psychology on the return to health. And the deal about weight is so fascinating. Your body, my body, everybody's body only holds on to excess weight, muscle or fat, that it believes is imperative for survival. And so if you don't use your muscles for survival, they get smaller. And if your body doesn't believe that it needs the fat, it'll let it go. And that's so much a part of what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to pull back to the whole Tony Robbins thing, because from my understanding, you actually have shared a stage with him. And, you know, I mean, just, just as a highlight, I guess, you know, listening to the cassette tape and then ending up in that same arena with the stage, how did that feel? Like, how, how, how was that, you know? I mean, it's, it, it's the funniest thing. So um, a very good friend of mine, Chet Holmes, uh, had, uh, had, was working with Tony Robbins and, and, and so on. And sadly, he passed away and he was scheduled to speak at an event. Yeah. And, um, and there was 11 days between the day, like they really thought he was going to be there. And then he just took a turn for the worse. He'd been sick for a long time and there was no way he was going to be able to make it because, you know, not there anymore. And so I arrived home and from a tour and, and, and my phone rang in my house and this guy says, Hey, Eric, uh, can you be in Fiji in 11 days? I'm in Turks and Caicos at that point. Like that's basically the other side of the world. Right. And I'm like 11 days. Why? What's going on? And they said, well, we need a speaker at Business Mastery with Tony Robbins. And I went, <laughs> yeah, I, got, I got some swampland in Florida for you too, you know? Yeah. And then he convinced me that it was real. And the next thing you know, I'm on a plane and I'm heading off to Fiji and I'm preparing to do this talk. And Tony had a really big impact on me as a kid. And he's continued to, he's, he, he's you know, he, he, he's very influential and he's a great mentor and a great teacher. And I got there and, uh, and it was really funny. It's so funny. He's like, he didn't pick me, right? He, he basically accepted that they couldn't find anybody else. And it was, and, and, and they, there's this one section of the seminar that, 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 um, that Chet always taught and Tony didn't feel comfortable teaching it. So they needed somebody. Yeah. And so they, they basically settled on me. And so Tony says to his team, look, I'm not introducing that guy because he's like totally afraid that I'm just going to bomb because guess what? I wasn't even a speaker back then. No videos on YouTube, not, like no reason I should be there. And by the way, the only reason I was there is they'd called everybody else <laughs> and, and they couldn't make it on 11 days notice. But yes. this is an important distinction. Yeah. I had something we call business freedom. Mm -hmm. My businesses don't physically need me. So for me to suddenly spontaneously go off to Fiji as possible, whereas the other business speakers yeah. couldn't do it on such short notice because their business needed them. That's so anyway, Tony, Tony says, uh, um, says, well, I want to meet this guy. So we're out in the hallway and, you know, Tony's like, two meters plus, you know, and I'm like, hi, Tony. And, and he goes, how are you feeling about your presentation? And I go, and, 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 and you know, honestly, I, I was looking at going, well, you want me to use somebody else's slides? You want me to give somebody else's presentation? And I've had 11 days to prepare. It's not ideal. And I said that to him and he goes, well, you could be a lot more confident. 
It's like, oh no, this is going horribly wrong. And then I just realized rapport, right? Tony teaches rapport. So I went, Tony, I'm fully confident. The reason I'm here delivering this talk is none of your other speakers actually own their businesses. Their businesses own them. So while it might not be exactly the content you're expecting, it's going to be gold. And he went, well, all right then. <laughs> it's all good. And, uh, and right there, I, right? <laughs> they also told me, they said he would never stay in the room. He's just too busy. Cause I was going to be on stage for three hours and every second sentence was in Chinese. It wasn't live translation. It was a like instant translator on the stage. So there's no way he was going to stay in the room and listen to three hours of me half in Chinese. But I made a decision to change the context and, and, and syntax of my talk. And I brought a story I knew he'd like forward. And I told it and he stayed in the room for three and a half hours Oh, brilliant! and, and laughed his ass off. And he and I just hit it off. He then booked me for a year and a half and he really launched my, my proper speaking career. So let's, I mean, that's, well, I mean, it's an amazing story. Um, you know, it's a put me in coach opportunity, right? But um, let's talk about business freedom. Cause I mean, I, I've heard, I've heard it mentioned a few, I don't know personally a lot about it was, was that what you're doing at the time? And how did the, how did that kind of start? How did that whole concept start? And I, and I love that messaging of, you know, I can do this because I actually love my brand, right? So it's amazing. Yeah. So um, business freedom was born out of this idea. When I started my first company, I didn't start it because I was brave. I didn't start it because I was particularly special or because I thought I knew anything about business. I started it because the job that I just quit was working for a man who had a very questionable and tenuous relationship with ethics and owed me a lot of money and didn't want to pay it to me because he was afraid I was going to start a competitive company. And so he held back like $180,000 from me so that he could basically stop me starting a, a competitive company. I, the irony here, and this is, I, you know, uh, people often misuse the word irony, but this is a great example of irony, is that because I had no money, I couldn't accept this job I'd been offered in Grand Cayman to, to, to learn stocks and bonds and work at a, at, a, at a brokerage company in Grand Cayman where I really wanted to move. And I couldn't do that because I had no money to go do it. And all of a sudden, one of my clients called me and said, can you help me with a project. And I'm like, I can't do that. I, I quit my job. And they go, no, 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 no. We, we know you're not there anymore. We, uh, we're, we're, we want you to help us anyway. And I'm like, uh, okay. And so I helped them. And suddenly I realized this is the only choice I have is to go to start a business competing like in the industry I know because my work visa was dependent on my job. So I can't get a job. I don't have enough money to go home. I'm were stuck. The, were you still in the UK at that time? Yeah, still in the UK. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and then, of course, you know, because I had this job and I thought it was a five-year contract and it was supposed to have share options, which, of course, he reneged on, all that stuff was gone. But in the meantime, because I had all that, we bought, we got cars, house, we started working on, we started, you know, the baby making process. Two weeks later, I quit my job. I went to my wife and I go, no babies, man. I don't have a job. I have no money. Yeah. And then about a week later, she goes, Apparently it only takes two weeks. And, yeah. you know, so now we got the baby on the way and I, and I really was under a lot of pressure. So I started the business, but I made it, this is, this is the answer to your real question. I remember distinctly, I was in a little town called Rinkton, just outside of Bristol. Mm -hmm. And I was living on this little cul-de-sac and I'm in my apartment and I'm sitting on the carpet floor using the couch and the, the coffee table for like, you know, post-it notes and planning and stuff. And I, I, I sat down and I asked myself, what do, what do I want to do with this? And I said, I want to build an asset. I want to build a company that will not need me. And I made that decision sitting on the floor before I had decided the name of the company or any of that kind of stuff. And so what happened is from then on, every decision I made was made through the filter of, I'm going to be gone one day. 
So here's a good example. The very first, that, that client who called me wanting me to help sent me a purchase order. I said, he goes, what's your fax number? I'm like, oh, the fax is down at the moment. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'll call you back in about half an hour. Got in the car, drove to the store, bought a fax machine, brought it home, plugged it in. Oh, fax is back up. Like, you know, it's like, this is startup mode, right? True, true startup mode. Yes. And he sent over the purchase order. And I realized that, it, that my old company would just send back an email. It's like, oh, we got your order. You know, my, and I was like, no, a real company would have a template that would look like a FedEx waybill or something like with all the boxes and shading. And yeah. so I opened up my word processor and I spent 45 minutes. And, and I remember, I, I remember even, even uh, uh, my wife at the time, she's like, are you really spending 45 minutes creating an order confirmation? Yeah. And I go, yeah, I totally am. She goes, you're not like, and, and, and then I was like, well, but next time I won't have to. Yeah, because it's here. And I built the business that way. So what that meant was after six years, I had the first sort of taste of real business freedom where I could literally walk into the office and work on whatever I wanted because nothing needed me. And if I didn't want to work, I didn't have to do that either. Yeah. And that set me up to be able to sell the business. And I did. And by the way, Clint, so uniquely here, this is very rare in, in a business sale, but I sold the company and walked out that day, never having to do another day of consulting or anything. Because the company worked. Yeah, I'm. I'm in. I, I run a tech consultancy business, and the, the golden handcuffs for the for the big four that acquire me, well, they will certainly get their pound of flesh if I if I choose to sell. Right. Um, yeah, that's yeah, just yeah. the harsh reality of the, you know the position that I that I am in. Yeah. Well, and and I would say to you that that's fixable. And and I, and I'll just give you an example. When these guys said they wanted to buy the company, we agreed the price. It was all yeah, they didn't even negotiate. They just, I just gave them the asking price. They agreed it. Done, yeah. which is nice. Yeah. But then they were doing this investigation, like your due diligence, and they hired an investigator. The bank, actually, the financing bank, uh, Royal Bank of Scotland, hired an investigator. It was part of the deal. And he comes to me and he goes, can you send me, you know, three sample clients for our investigation? And I was lazy. So I just called my accounting woman and I said, just send him our top 20. He can pick what three he wants to look at. Now, the guy told me to, to pick three. He, what he meant for me to do is take my best three so we would pass the audit. I didn't think like that. I, I just, so I sent him 20. He was so mad, Clint. It turned out that they have an ISO procedure, ISO 9000. Yeah, and the ISO yeah. 9000 procedure is that they, they can't choose which one. So if you send them 20, they have to do all 20. <laughs> and he had quoted a flat rate investigator. So it was really about, I don't know, a month later, I'm in the car with the buyer, Paul, and the investigator calls. And Paul's like, don't let him know you're in the car. Shh. And so the guy goes, this Eric guy's an idiot. And I'm like, oh no, why am I an idiot? He goes, I told him, I gave him a, 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 you know, a shrug and a wink and an elbow to give me his best three clients. And he sent me 20. And then he explains the whole, how they have to do all 20. And he goes, but, but I have incredibly good news. He said the highest possible rating that we have in our system, the highest possible rating is not satisfied. It's so happy that we are looking actively for additional paths of business with this client. Like, and he said, all 20 of them said that. Sweet. And I'm thinking, price is going up. Price <laughs> is going up, right? And then, and then he goes, but there's a problem. And, and he said, and like, what's the problem? I'm thinking, oh, no. And he goes, well, almost every single one of them mentioned Eric personally by name. Yeah. That's a problem. But then he immediately followed with, but Paul, honestly, I'm not even going to include it in the report because we asked a follow-up question. Not one of them has heard from, received an email from, or spoken to Eric in over two years. Wow. And that's because the company was running completely without me. And, and, and that's what business freedom is really all about. So I just want to ask a quick question in terms of, because, you know, from my understanding, early 20s, you, you figured out your health issues and started going down the, 
the rabbit hole of the psychology and the and, and the actual you know the, the change did it not drive you nuts in those days helping businesses and seeing people trying to push the you know push the profitability envelope but then their health being in such bad state how did how did you how did you keep that to yourself because i know you always say don't stand on the soapbox lead by example but how did you manage to keep you know the golden content to yourself and not shove it down people's throats in those days i'll be honest is that at first i didn't know that principle (laughs) and so and so basically i was i was a food crank and a jerk if i sat down with you and you ordered something full of cream i'd say really do you want to know what's in that? Like I, I was one, I, I was like full of the unsolicited advice. I was like every passionate vegan or every passionate iPhone user or Tesla driver. I was like that. I was like, you're going to, you're going to learn all about this. If I can help it. You're going to get some and, mail from the vegans now, man. Come on. Hey, I, I don't think there's any, if vegans are passionate about what they do, they should be passionate. I, that's okay with me. I, I, I'm just saying I was passionate like that. And all I would say to vegans is I think you'd have better luck with, lead rather than push, right? Like the same with all of it. But in any event, we, uh, um, what I found was it wasn't working anyway. It just wasn't working. Like it didn't matter. It, it just wasn't working. And then I, um, when I started the Business Freedom Academy and I started traveling around the world teaching business back in about 2012, um, I, 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 would, I would really like, I'd be sitting in a room with hundred people teaching business for five days at our, at our, our business freedom experience. That's our entrepreneur business school. And I was there and, I, and people would be asking, well, Eric, how can I drive greater profitability or how can I do this or whatever? And, 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 and my dad always says that I think in pick lists. So like, I'm, I'm usually quite quick with comebacks. So if somebody says something to me, I come up with about eight options of what I could say. And then I dial the niceness up or down depending on the circumstance, right? And so these people go, well, Eric, what do you think the number one thing I could do to really improve my business? And, and the little voice in my head would say, you could lose some weight. You could, you could lose some weight. You could stop eating so damn much. You could move your body. Like, that's what I wanted to say. But by that point, I'd learned that, um, you, that, that is unattractive and it's not going to create the result. Yeah. So instead, I started using the very marketing principles that we teach at Business Freedom called inception marketing. I started teaching from the perspective of storytelling to help them have the curiosity. So for example, now when they asked me a question about, well, Eric, you arrived here yesterday from North America and you don't have jet lag and you're on stage for 15 hours. How are you? And you're not drinking coffee the whole, how are you doing that? And I would, all I would do at that point is say, oh, well, there's just some things I understand about food and metabolism that allowed me to have an inexhaustible source of energy and keep my immune system robust. Now, next question. Yeah. So just, right. Well, next question is always like, what are those things that you know? And so people started asking me food questions and, and, and the evolution was really simple. I then started offering a bonus session on Sunday mornings. It was a five-day program that ended on Sundays, Sundays or Saturdays. And I, and I started offering a one-hour bonus session where I would give them an introductory talk that we called the human diet, the, the underpinning of evolutionary biology. And I would give them all this stuff. And Clint, it was great about 5% of them would actually go out and make a change. And I was like, that's better than the diet industry, the average anyway. So I was like, okay, 5% is about five times better than the diet industry. So what the hell? And we, but no, 5% wasn't enough. And that's when I really started to think about what if I were to apply proper behavioral change psychology, what we now call behavioral change dynamics, what would, what would we do if I applied that and combined it with really solid 
nutritional anthropology, is it possible we could change the world? And that's where WildFit was born from. We, we started the program on that thinking. And so our clients were attracted to it by my being and my giving them curiosity. And then the word of mouth, it just took off from there. Yeah, brilliant. And I, 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 we are going to go down the WildFit path, but I'm just, my son would kill me if I didn't ask the question about your movie company, because he's a big, I mean, from my understanding, you're acquired by Lucasfilms and he's a big Star Wars and that. So if we don't talk about that, I might, he might leave this house. So how did you, how did you get into that world, man? How did you end up with a, with a special effects company and how did that journey all start? It's, it's kind of a crazy story. My good friend, Gavin Wilding is a film producer in Canada, prolific. He's made probably 15 or 20 movies. None of them have been wildly successful, but they've all, you know, they've all been relatively successful projects and with everybody from Jason Stratham to Charlize Theron. So he's, he's quite a film producer and I've known him since he made his first movie. And one day I was in LA and, and he called me up and he asked me if I could host a show for him. And I'd never hosted a show before. And I, I agreed to give it a try. And I went just a pilot episode and I went and did it with him and it was really fun. And then he goes, what are you doing this weekend? And I'm like, nothing. I'm in LA hanging out. And he goes, well, I'm going up to ILM, Industrial Light and Magic. I'm going up to the old ILM studios yeah. and, uh, you know, for, for a meeting. Do you want to come and see the place? I give you a bit of a tour. And they don't offer tours. The, the reason, one of the reasons that George Lucas chose to be up in the North Bay, up in, up in the San Francisco area was he didn't want to be part of the whole Hollywood scene, right? So anyway, I, I, I'm like, if somebody offer, if you were seven when Star Wars came out and somebody offers you the chance to tour the original ILM studios, yeah, yeah. No, you're going. So I got up there and Clint, this is so funny. I got up there and they, uh, and the reason Gavin's up there, he's consulting with them on some projects and trying to help them raise some money for the studio because they've spun off from Lucasfilm. So the, some of the owners and investors bought the studios from Lucasfilm. And so now it was independent and they were trying to raise money. And I watched this one investor pitch and it was, Clint, it was so bad. It was so bad. Like these guys didn't. So I go to Gavin, Gavin, these guys are never going to raise money. Like it's not going to work. And he goes, why not? And I go, well, this, 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 this. And he goes, Jesus, you should have been helping me raise money for films all these years. Like that's amazing. Would you be willing to tell the owners that? No, I'm on a tour. I'm not, no, I'm not doing Next thing you know, I'm sitting in a board meeting telling the owner this. And then they ask me if I'll do the next, if I'll actually do the next pitch with the group of investors coming in. And I, I can't, it's like surreal. I'm standing in the George Lucas theater and the investors are here and I'm doing the pitch for a studio that I arrived at two days ago. Oh, and, and then one of the investors goes, well, if we invest, will Eric stay to run the company? <laughs> Power of public speaking, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. And it, in the end, that investor group fell apart and they didn't put it together. And I ended up having a conversation with the father of one of the owners. Um, and uh, he and I reached a deal for me to acquire the studio and the 3D technologies and all that stuff. And so that began one of the most fascinating business chapters of my life, um, a, a spontaneous and terrible financial decision, but a great, <laughs> great opportunity and yeah. super fun. And, you know, the first movie that we worked on uh, was um, this is right around the time that movie, that 3D movie Up came out and Avatar oh. was just on its way to the theaters. And so we worked on Avatar. We did some some effects for Avatar and then we were working on Pirates of the Caribbean and we were blowing things up and it was just fascinating. But Clint, what was really cool about it is we had a little secret skunk works department that we called Kerner works and it did Hollywood special effects stuff mm -hmm. for the military and intelligence branches in the United States. Wow. So our clients were like CIA, DEA, you know, doing, doing these. And, and one of the projects, there were many really cool projects that we did for them. Like we had to develop an Eagle, a drone that yeah. looked like an Eagle that, um, had a, a camera in it. So you could like fly it around the Middle East and nobody would even know there was a drone there. Like it, we, it, and we had to develop, it, it was really cool. Yeah. So we did um, another one where we took our 
let's say creature effects, you know, when you're making monsters or injury and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And we worked with a big company in the United States to create super hyper-realistic trauma simulation dummies for preparing medics to deal with IED interaction, leg amputations and stuff like yeah. that. And the product went on to win awards from the US Army and Congress. And it was a real honor to, to work on that, like, literally life-saving. So, so during this time, so were you, were you still running the Business Premium Academy or that been sold off? Was this no, I had not started. Uh, no, this is all prior to me starting uh, Business Freedom and stuff. I was okay. doing some speaking for fun, but yeah. I hadn't really like launched a, like say speaker author type career at that point. So I was really focused on the movie company, the 3D camera company yeah. we started and the military R&D company. Classic. And where were you staying at that time? Uh, I was, um, I had a house in San Rafael, California, yeah. and then I also had a house in Turks and Caicos, so I was commuting. Okay, so, so the, the Dominican Republic's where you are now, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you've, you've been there for a while, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I live in Turks and Caicos, uh, sort of uh, um, practically speaking, but I spend far more of my time here. And, uh, you know, I, uh, the kiting is so good here, the culture is so good here. It's, it, it is, and, and, I, and basically I spent this entire 2020 fiasco here. Um, <laughs> and it, this was the best place I could possibly imagine to deal with um, lockdowns and pandemics and stuff, because, you know, basically we could go to the beach any day and, and we were very lucky here. Yeah, we, I'm Sunshine Coast Australia and we were pretty much the same, right? We could surf yeah. every day, kited, we, we had it. I mean, you know, we, we, we shut down a city for one case, you know, so we, we, we dodged a bullet. Absolutely. You know, you know, over here. So let's go, let's go to Wildfoot now. Um, so, so you had the first one hour um, classes, which is Wildfoot 1.0, let's call it. When you, when you formulated, well, you know, the, 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 the trailer, uh, when, when you formulated the challenge for the first time, you know, combining all the psychology and the, and the sort of the, the research you'd done, what, what did the first version of it look like? And, and, you know, you have told, I've heard a story you told when you did the first trial class and I was like, this can't be right. Um, do you just want to talk around that a little bit? Yeah, so I, it was one of these things where um, I, I knew what I wanted to create it and, and, and I knew the core principles, but I didn't really know the full deployment. So let me, let me be more clear. I knew the nutritional part of it, absolutely. I knew like long before keto was a thing, while we were already talking about seasonality and, and the dual functions of the pancreas and how it's very important that your body go through those seasons or else you're gonna create imbalance. We were ahead of the curve on that, way ahead, but I didn't think of it as a business. So I never got that message really out there until about seven or eight years ago. And even then, one of the reasons incidentally that we call spring, spring in WildFit is because we initially started talking about it in the first classes as keto, but then people would go to Google and type in keto. And back then you would immediately, the first search you'd get was ketoacidosis and it would scare the shit out of people. Yeah. And these days keto's caught on now. So it's pushed it way down the list, right? But back then we couldn't use the phrase keto because of that. So the way it worked was I had a theory about the, the structure. I knew what I wanted to do nutritionally and seasonally. And I had the principles that I wanted to apply from a behavioral change perspective, but not that clear a plan of how to do it. Mm. And so I got eight clients. I got eight sample clients. All of them were free. Nobody paid. And, um, and I ran them through the program. And, and there were no videos back then. I taught every segment. They got all the information from me. And frankly, I made up the enhancements on a week-by-week -week basis based on the feedback that I was getting from the clients. So I knew that I was going to take them to spring, but I didn't know how many weeks it was going to take to get there, for example. Yeah. And, um, and there, you know, there's some other nuances in there, but we did that first class of eight and all eight of them showed remarkable improvement and like lost weight if they needed to and, and so on and so forth. And I was like, 
yeah, but no diet program has like a 90 to 100% success rate. Like mm. this is only working because these eight people were really good, well-chosen or, you know, whatever, right? And so I did another eight and it worked. And then I did another eight and it worked. And then um, a couple of things happened that made me feel like I should record the core content. I realized there was two types of content. There was the educational content and then there was the transformational content. And there's, a, there's an overlap. Some of the educational content is delivered in a transformational way, but there's something about coaching and in interacting with people. And so I then went into the studio and recorded the entire program badly. I mean, you know, we, we, didn't, we didn't have all the tech that we have these days. I didn't have the budget that we have these days. It was very different. So I recorded the whole program. And so now people could watch videos and then I wouldn't have to regurgitate and say the same things all the time. All I would do is the interaction, coaching and answering questions. For the next two years, we collected all the questions people submitted to us and tagged them week by week. So we knew exactly what people were asking in week one, two, 12, whatever. And so then about now three years ago, I went into the studio again, but this time we shot it really well. And we knew all the questions what, that people were asking. Mm -hmm. So we re-recorded the content with all of the enhancements we knew needed to be there, plus filling all the holes people identified with their questions. We cut down our help desk traffic by 90% and improved performance of the program dramatically. Classic. And, and how many people were you taking through at a time then? Were you still, you know, once you had that core video content, were you, were you still hands-on or did you have the other coaches helping you? Obviously, you've got that business freedom mindset, so you knew you wanted to step away at some stage. What are the yeah? So one of the reasons that it was called like the that it was called Wild Fit rather than say the Eric Edmeads diet, like the JJ Virgin diet or something like that, like is that I I really wanted it to be um, I wanted it to be separate from me. I, I I wanted it to be able to stand alone without me one day, just like you just said, business yeah. freedom. I wanted it that way. And incidentally, little sidebar here, I was at, uh, there's a really great little cafe in London you might know called the Wild Food Cafe. And uh, my friend Joel started it. Total coincidence on the names, not, yeah. not related. But but anyway, I went in there one day, a couple, three years ago, and, uh, and Joel was there. And he's like, oh my God, Eric, so good to have you here. Let me text some people. And so next thing you know, there was this instant mastermind. You know, we're, we're all sitting there talking and, you know, all really cool people. Yeah. And this one guy, uh, he's a, a very high level chiropractor named David Thunder. And David's, David's, you know, we're talking about inflammation and how food can trigger this and all this kind of stuff. And he goes, yeah, like I've got this one couple, they're my clients in America. And he says, it's really interesting. It used to take 45 minutes to do their adjustments, right? Like I had to loosen them up and put warm packs on them and then I could get the adjustments. And he goes, but they did some health protocol and now I can get them in and I'm out of Austin 15 minutes. It's awesome. Hey, he goes, have you ever heard of this wild fit thing? <laughs> Classic. And I'm like, well, I may have, I may have heard of it. I possibly have heard about it. And that, that moment was to me uh, like this um, indication that I had done this part right. So when I created the videos, um, this is the way it worked. The first say year, there were no videos. Then, you know, at some point in the first year, second year, I then recorded the videos. And so everybody would be coached by me, but watch the videos. Mm. Then one day, one of my clients, Elizabeth, I still remember, Elizabeth came to me and she goes, she goes um, Eric, I've been coaching other people. And I'm like, what? What do you mean? How could you possibly? She goes, well, I roughly remember the content. And so I just guide them through. And she goes, and this one woman was like 80 years old. And she was like, just sitting on the couch waiting to die. And now she's like, you know, bowling and then square dancing, or I don't know. She was just like living, you know, have a second lease on life. And she goes, and it was my mother. So I, 
how could you stop me from coaching her? And I walked away from that conversation. I thought, wow, now I really can get it out to the world because this woman without any training was able to create massive transformation in two people's lives. And so that's partly why I decided to record videos because the, my concern was what percentage of the retention did she have? Like, she, did she remember 80% of everything or 50? And then that means her client might remember 50% of her 50% and WildFit would just end up being watered down. And so I thought if I record the videos, then at least the content will remain consistent. And then I can train people on the coaching routines. Yeah. And that's what launched the videos and the coaching certification. And it also launched scalability because at that point, Business Freedom Academy was my primary focus, teaching business all over the world, mostly in, in Europe, frankly, but all over the world. And, um, and, and, and then all of a sudden, and we were, you know, I would do these little one hour presentations on WildFit on the last day. And, you know, usually 10 or 15 people would sign up and do WildFit. And so we were doing about 100 clients a year. Yep. And it was $1,500. So it was $150,000 a year. Nice little line item, but honestly, for the level of time I was putting in, we were losing money. Like the same amount of time on business coaching is five times the money, right? So it wasn't really a moneymaker of any kind, but what the hell? Nice little line item, it stays there. And then all of a sudden, a friend of mine, Paul Sheely, he did the program with his wife and he's quite a famous author in America. And he called one day, he goes, can I tell my network about your program? And I'm like, I guess. Yeah. And he goes, well, where's the website? We don't have one. What do you mean you don't have one? I go, it's not, it's not a business. It's a hobby. We just sell it to our business clients. It's the only way to buy it is to come to one of our business programs. And he goes, you need to put up a website. So we put up a website and then he told his network and 200 people signed up. So more than a year's clients signed up. And I was like, we're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> like this, you know, like exactly. we're going to need to make some changes here. And then it happened again about a month and a half later, another guy did it and another 200 people signed up. And then Vishen Lakiani from Wild, from, from Mind Valley, yeah. he did it and transformed his body and posted pictures of his body online and told his network about it. And 1,100 people signed up in about a week and a half. So, and so we went from 150 yeah. clients a year to three and a half thousand clients in one year. It was incredible. So I want to pause before we get to the Mind Valley story because, I, to me, the way the way I look at it, um, you know, the wild foot explosion globally. Um, I'm a, I was a huge fan of Wim Hof before he even, you know, from a breathing ice bars, loved all that stuff before, and then he went on Joe Rogan, and suddenly he was mainstream, right? So, yeah. to me, what happened with you guys with Mind Valley is this, you know, it was this 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 business, and then it went poof, and now suddenly everybody knows about it. I yeah. just want to pause there before we go there, um, if you don't mind, and. One of the one of the interesting things as you tell people about Wildfit is it's too good to be true. It it's 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 it sounds like you're selling snake oil. Now, you know, and especially as I'm coaching my clients through, you know, they they arguing with me after 10 days because they're eating to eat the food they've always eaten without getting angry with me. You know, I've got I've got a partner of a of a massive sort of firm who was overwhelmed and now is bored and looking for new projects. You know, you, you, all these, I've got someone who, as an example, who, who hasn't, who's, who couldn't get out of bed in the morning, started writing a book. I've got someone else who's, you know, has a, oh man, it's, it's a, you know, fertility issues can't fill out an adoption form after eight years of sitting with the forms folded out. I mean, it just doesn't make, if you told these stories, yeah, it's, it's unrealistic. So how did you, how did you deal with, because knowing the enormous effects, benefits, how did you, because it is too good to be true when you understand, you know, once you go through the journey, but how did you communicate that in a way that it, that it landed, I guess? A little bit of luck, Clint, because mm. 
you got to know, I didn't know. Like I knew it would make people healthier. Yeah. I knew people would lose weight. I knew all that, but I didn't know that it would like end inflammation. I didn't know that it would reverse type two diabetes. I mean, I had a theory, but I didn't know. I didn't know that it would push clients into cancer remission. I didn't know that we would get clients with HIV who go and get their blood testing and have the first normal blood readings that they've had in 10 years. I, I, I didn't know that people would be trying to have babies for five years and give up on all the treatments and then one day get pregnant because guess what their body was working in. I didn't know all that stuff. So it meant I didn't say it. So, it, you know, I sold WildFit on the merits of what I knew not on what I thought was going to happen. And so I was, uh, what it turned out is I was following one of my own principles accidentally. And that is, you know, not, and not that it's just my principle, but a good principle. And that is, uh, you know, under promise and over deliver. So I would go in and say, look, it's going to help you have more energy. You won't need to drink a coffee at two o'clock in the afternoon. You know, it's like, you, you, if you want to lose some weight, you're going to lose some weight. And I'd start with that. And then the testimonial started coming in and it was like, holy crap. Like complete turnaround. What Clint, one of my favorite is one of our, one of our, one of my favorite ones. There's so many, but one, one client in particular, he's a medical doctor and he, and he's driving to his clinic and he, um, and you, you, I think this is in the video. So you may have heard the story before he's driving to his clinic, stops at Starbucks to pick himself up a supercharged coffee to keep him awake on the drive to the, uh, to the office and still falls asleep and drifts off into traffic and is in a horrible car accident. You know, two days later, he's in his rental car stops at Starbucks to pick up another coffee to keep him awake on his way to work, drifts off into the HOV lane, is in another really terrible, and luckily nobody's hurt. Yeah, but at yeah. this point he realizes he has the worst imposter syndrome ever because he's a medical doctor, he's hypertensive, he's type two diabetic, he's on five medications and he can't stay a freaking awake in the car. And he's like, what right do I have to be a doctor? And that night he goes home and he watches a masterclass of ours, signs up and does WildFit, loses 35 or 40 pounds, ends his hypertension, ends his type two diabetes, becomes what we now call post-diabetic, mm -hmm. and also uh, starts um, taking it into his practice. And now he's become a trained WildFit coach and uses WildFit principles in, in his three clinics in LA. I, I would never have known that was gonna happen when I started. So I couldn't possibly oversell. Now, Clint, we have to be careful because now we know these things. Yeah. And so what, what I feel is, is that, you know, like here's a really great example. There's something that we're working on that will come up a lot more in the new version of WildFit, but it's something that we call the, the, the zero point. You may have heard me speak about this a little bit, but it's, it's not in the content yet. Mm. The zero point is in WildFit terms, the best metaphor is a, um, let's say a whale jumps out of the water and at the very peak when it's not going up or down, it's at the zero point. Yeah. Another example would be a bird a big bird like runs down the beach and it's flapping its wings and it gets into the air and it's flapping its wings, it's flapping its wings. And then suddenly it doesn't have to flap anymore. Yeah. That's the zero point. Well, in WildFit, the zero point is that moment when you look over at a food that you used to be powerless over, pizza or donuts or whatever it is, and you look at it and you go, I don't even want it. Mm. I don't have to use willpower at all. Some friend is going, come on, it's so good. And you're like, not tempted. That's the zero point. The trouble is if we tell people out there that the zero point exists, they don't believe it. They're like, <laughs> yeah. I can't, there will never be a time in my life when I don't want to eat donuts. Yes, there can be. Yeah. yeah and I try to explain that to my clients is like, the, you, there will come a time where you won't see that as food. And they're yeah. like, huh? And I'm like, just trust me. You know, if you trust the process and you, and you commit to the process, you won't see that as a food. 
It won't yeah. become a willpower thing. So before we go into the mind body thing, which I know is huge, I just want to pivot quickly to, to kiting, which is obviously we've got to talk about it. But the reason I want to talk about it is because when everyone embarks on something new, it's difficult, right? And it's hard and it's frustrating. And you use and you tell them a wonderful story about the baboon in the cage and looking at different, you know, which is a wonderful metaphor for it. But just how did you get into kiting? How frustrating? What is it? And the whole purpose is just to show that it's so frustrating in the beginning as you change your lens to look at stuff, but then become second nature. So, and also I'm a, you know, an ocean nut. So I just want to know <laughs> how did the kiting come about? Okay. So I lived in Turks and Caicos and there's quite good kiting there. Uh, to be fair, I- now I see it as quite boring cutting because it's, it's nice to visit, but it's like flat water every day. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I like a little surf in that. But in any event, I never really got into kiting when I was in Turks and Caicos because it was on the other coast. So it was like, eh, if I saw it every day, I would have loved it. But I, then I came here to Dominican Republic to visit a friend of mine um, for a kiteboarding mastermind that used to happen here called Mai Tai. Yeah. And so I showed up for Mai Tai to meet this client of mine, this client friend of mine. And then when I got here, I bumped into another friend of mine, another South African export, Bruce Music. And Bruce, funny enough, I had brought Bruce to Turks and Caicos for a mastermind. Yeah. And he loved the Caribbean so much that he then relocated to DR and I didn't know. So then we got to the DR and we walk into the Millennium Hotel and, the, and there's a bit of a beach party going on and there's Bruce and he's an avid kiteboarder. Yeah. And so now I'm in this kiteboarding community with the Mai Tai people and then there's Bruce and he's, and I'm like, I, I got to try this out. But I got one of my biggest lessons about this. You see, I'm, I'm a little dyslexic. Okay, sometimes a lot. Yeah. And so any sport that requires you to remember how to tie the right string to the right place, to the left thing, to the left thing, and if you get that wrong, you might die or somebody else might die, that's pretty scary, right? And so what happened in my case is, funny enough, I got invited to go to this conference in Thailand and I found a kite school because I had extra days. So I went to a kite school in Thailand and the guy started showing me tying up the strings and I'm like, I'm not doing this. Like, you're telling me that if I tie this string wrong, like someone could die? And he goes, these kites are really strong. Like, you have to get it right. And I'm like, I'm dyslexic. I, I, I don't even want, I can't, you're showing me and I can't remember it. And then, by the way, the more frustrated you are, the more dyslexic you become, right? Yeah. And so, but my instructor, French guy, what a great guy. Um, he, he goes, he goes, Eric, um, he goes, in, in the DR, there are kite caddies on the beach that set kites up all day. You pay them a dollar. They'll, they'll set your kite up. They'll take it down. You don't even have to think about it. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. all right, let's yeah. give that a try. So then he goes, all right, now let's lay out the strings. And we lay out the strings. The next day he's like, okay, I'll lay out the left strings. You lay out the right strings. The next day he's like, okay, you lay out the strings, but I'll connect them to the kite. The next day he's like, Eric, I'm just wrapping up a lesson here. Can you lay out the strings and attach the kite? I'll check it. Six days later, I know how to do the strings, right? Like, Sometimes learning needs to be get that way. If we can get through the first 5% of something, then, you know, the first 5% is the toughest part of mastery. And if you can get through that first 5%, then, then magic can happen. And that's really what happened to me with kiting. And by the way, it's so, you know, it's so full of metaphors. Like when you first try to go upwind, when you first try to go upwind, if you look at where you want to go, you will not get there. You need to look beyond where you want to go. And then magically you get to where you want to go. And if that's not true in the rest of life, I don't know what is. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, you know, so I surf, I foil, I kite, I do everything. And I've just started the wing foiling, the wing dinging. Uh, and I had my first session today and there were many walks of shame and there were many <laughs> bad words. Um, have you got into foiling at all? No, you know, I, I, everybody here, Everybody here foils these days because yeah. there are days with light wind and then they can go. Mm-hmm. I, I have to say, I, I'm, 
I'm, I'm not that intrigued at the moment. And I, I mean, you and I should talk it out one day, but A, I worry about the turtles, honest to goodness. Like the, we have so many turtles in this bay and they're whipping along with these sharp blades. And I'm like, I just don't know about that. Like yeah. that bothers me. That said, I've never heard of one getting hit. So maybe I'm just being stupid. But then the other thing is I am like, my favorite kiting is flying and, and, and surfing and being in the big waves. And we're lucky here. We have like a double break. We have a shore break and a reef break. So you can go out into massive surf on the reef and not end up on the beach. It's awesome. I see foil kiting is kind of like flat water kiting in Turks and Caicos. You just zig and forth, back and forth. And I don't want to jump with that damn thing because it could take my head off. No, well, you, you and I must definitely have a sidebar, but I, I don't yeah. kite foil. We, we are paddling a little 4-4 and then we tow behind the jet ski. So when it's ah. big, you, you, you go out 3Ks out to sea and you're getting like three kilometer waves and the speed is just... I am tempted, but there's just some guys here who've just recently brought in the uh, powered foil boards, you know, so oh. you like, there's no wind, the water's flat, but there's a swell on the, on the, and, and I said, that sounds pointless to me. It's a 30 minute battery. And he goes, yeah, but you don't use it the whole time. You use it to catch the wave. Then you ride the wave. So 30 minute battery is 45 minute or sorry, 30 minute battery could be an hour and a half uh, surf session. I'm like, Ooh, okay. Now I'm tempted. Yeah. So a mate of mine's the agent for that here in Australia and obviously another dodgy South African. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, oh, that looks boring, right? And he said, oh, I just have a spin. I'm like, oh, I'm not really interested. And I got on one and I was like, oh my God, that's so much fun. <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> anyway, let's, let's pivot to the, to the Mind Valley explosion, right? So, so that's, I'm just also conscious of time here. So that just took Wildfoot to the next level, right? I mean, I mean, from a global perspective, how was working with Mind Valley, changing the content to fit in their platform and, and just that, that explosion, I guess? You know, it's, it's, it is an interesting story. So that, that, that sort of year to 18 months was very interesting for us because we were already experiencing exponential growth. Like we'd gone from 150 clients in one year to 500 clients and that's before Mind Valley came along. So we already did a 500% uplift and reasonably speaking, we were, we, we, that, that would have continued. Yeah. But then all of a sudden Vision did the program. And the reason Vision did the program is that he's a member of the Transformational Leadership Council where I am as well. So I met him there and we got talking and, you know, and I was doing free classes for, for our fellow members like Jack Canfield and, and all like some really great people in the, in the industry. So that was partly also helping get our name out there. And then Vision um, did the program and, and he just immediately came and he goes, I'd like to do a joint venture with you and promote it out to my clients and, you know, take a commission on the sales or whatever. And I'm like, of course, let's do it. And that's when like, he just basically, we did a webinar and he put the pictures of his body up and boom, 1100 people. But it wasn't just that. He also put his team through the company, I think 200 employees. And they all, like he said, it had such an impact on reduced sick days, increased longevity of employment, reduced stress, um, uh, the bar bill going down at the parties. Like <laughs> it had a real impact, right? And so, um, and then around that same time, the government of Canada notified me that I'd been nominated for this medal um, and, uh, you know, by the Senate. And so I had to go to Ottawa and, 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 and the Speaker of the Senate and, and, and this Senator uh, Mobina Jaffer, she was there and she, they presented me with this medal for the work that we've been doing around the world. And, you know, suddenly we realized like, wow, this is, this is maybe going to be bigger than, like we always thought it could be big, but suddenly it was like, it's happening much faster than we thought. And it's been, it's been a real ride and a real honor. Yeah, it's, 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 um, it, it is amazing. Just in terms of, I guess, you know, trying to explain food freedom for those who, who don't, you don't know it. I know you, there's a story you always tell about Kurtz and the ice cream, um, you know, the thousand dollar story, which I love. And, and I actually had a, um, a similar story. I, I, I copied your, uh, I copied your lead. Yeah. I, I unofficially coached a friend of mine 
um, through Wildfoot because uh, he, he, he had reached the point, right? And it's a, it's a crazy story where he, he was a successful businessman who wanted to get into a helicopter and he had to be under 110 kilograms to fly the R22 instead of He spent $28,000 on a personal trainer, 18 months. We equated his time, which came to about a $200,000 of just the time that he wasted. So, so there's a quarter of a million dollars on the, on the table that he lost didn't budge. Um, he then sort of did the license for the bigger helicopter, which cost an extra 20, which is going to cost him extra $300,000 to buy. So we're looking at a $700,000 gap here. Um, and he was, he saw my transformation. He paid his eight ninety five and did it by himself. And he now weighs 96 or whatever. Um, so, so he's, he's had the transformation and he's tried everything. And I was sitting in, in Brisbane at a meeting and I was chatting to a potential client who's in my class now and he walked past me serendipitously. And I said to him, I'll give you $1,000 to eat a spaghetti carbonara, which is what he used to eat for lunch every day. And he said a very, very bad word to me and then walked away. <laughs> and the lady sitting opposite him. He said, Munikak Pratni. <laughs> no, 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 he's an Aussie, but he, he told he to <laughs> fuck off, basically. He, he refused. <laughs> and, and you just want to tell your story about, you know, Kurt and, and that food freedom where you don't see things in fruit as, as, as food anymore. And it's such a powerful message. Yeah. You know, um, uh, I had a really interesting conversation. So it turns out one of the founders of Zumba, um, mm. did wild fit and, and then he got on my calendar somehow. And, and the next thing you know, we're having a conversation. He says, you're about to do to weight loss and dieting what we did to fitness. And so how can I support you? And he's been helping us with brand delivery and he's really been a huge help to us. But he said something kind of remarkable. He said, um, he said, all these people in the world are trying to find a program that they can stick to. And what you've done is created a lifestyle that just sticks to them. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, no wonder this guy's a marketing genius because that's exactly the right way to say it. I immediately wrote, can I use that? And he's like, yeah, go for it. That's brilliant. But, um, but then he and I and Andrea, who runs our business, we were all in Jamaica at a conference. And we were sitting around talking about brand frequency. And, and, and Jeffrey says this, he goes, look, every great brand owns an emotion. And, and you, when you, when, you, like, when you interact with that brand, you feel that emotion to some degree. And he's like, so for example, Harley Davidson is all about say rebellion or, or reverence. Like it's, it's, that's what Harley Davidson is. And, 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 and Coca-Cola allegedly is all about happiness. I would argue that point, but they've done a great job of marketing themselves that way. And he says, so when you, when you factor those things in, he, he says, what do you think the frequency is of, of WildFit? What is the emotion? What is the frequency? And I just said, freedom. And he goes, what does that mean? I go, well, it just means freedom to eat what you want without feeling bad about it and freedom to not eat what you wish you wouldn't without having regret. Like, that's the deal. And, he, and so that night, we kind of agreed that it would be some form of freedom that would be the brand frequency. The next morning, we're sitting in the buffet area of the resort, the three of us. And this guy walks out of the buffet and he's got his plate of food, good food. And he sees me and he spots me and he goes, oh, you're Eric Edmeets. Clint, I don't know why people feel like they need to identify me for myself. This, like, ever since people started recognizing me, they like, the first thing they want to do is tell me who I am. Thank you. <laughs> Almost lost there for a minute. Yeah, but he's like, that. you're Eric Edmeets. And I'm like, yeah, I am. And he goes, he goes, I just want to thank you. And I said, great. What, what for? I, you know, what, what, what for? And he goes, he goes, for my freedom. And I looked at Jeffrey and I thought, Jeffrey put him up to this. There's no way. And I look at Jeffrey and the look on his face says he did not put him up to it. And I look at Andrea, same thing. Like we're all like, <gasps> like the, like the genie in Aladdin. For the John, like, and, and then, but Jeffrey's so smart. He goes, he goes to the guy, his name is David. He goes, David, um, what does that mean to you exactly? 
Mm. And the guy goes, well, I just walked through the buffet of a five-star hotel. And suddenly I looked down at my plate and I realized I've never been in a buffet of a five-star hotel before that didn't have donuts and muffins and cookies and shit. And so I walked back in and there they were, but I never saw them. Wasn't interested. That's freedom. It's beautiful, man. Just, just before we wrap up, I'm just conscious of your time. Something that's struck me as, you know, being on the NLP path, being on the coaching path, trying to help, you know, divorce people, do, doing my bit to, to help as many people as I can. What's struck me so much in coaching my first wildfire class is the emotional baggage that gets, comes to the surface and gets released. Like yeah. I know my stuff, a lot of my scars and a lot of my stuff and baggage that had happened in my life, I let go last year after Wildfoot. And I'm seeing that in my clients, whereas through food, we're healing them from the inside out, right? We're healing the emotional scars through giving them the right nutrition. What's your, I mean, obviously you've seen it time and time again, but I'd just love to get your perspective on that because it's, I mean, I had a call with Petra last night and it's taken me back so much because as a coach, I can help people in all these aspects, but I didn't expect it to happen so quickly and for them to just let stuff go and deal with, deal with the scars. I'm going to say something maybe a little controversial, but I will tell you that I firmly believe that if every single person was forced to go through a wild fit type program that would help their metabolic, get their metabolic health right and get their nutrition right before they saw a psychiatrist, fully 90% of them would never need to go see that psychiatrist. And the few that did still want to go see the psychiatrist would go to that psychiatrist in a non-pharmaceutical therapeutical environment. They wouldn't need drugs. And, and, and I'm telling you, I fully believe that the vast majority of the psychological pain and suffering and trauma and all that stuff that we're dealing with is if not created by, it's massively amplified and supported by poor nutrition. When somebody is like the vast majority of people in the Western world are overfed energy and stimulants and underfed nutritional, non-energy nutritional constituents. So they're overcharged and starving at the same time, which is naturally going to make them more fearful, which is going to amplify any past trauma or any psychological problem they're having. So I, I really believe that things like depression and, and, and food, food disorders and, and a, a variety of uh, anxiety, I believe that many of those things exist because there is some sort of psychological seed, but that it is only made as bad as it is because most people's relationship with food is terrible. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's just, it's been, it's blown me away and it's, it's been, it's been amazing. So look, Clint, I, I, when I started WildFit, there was a woman who worked for me at the time and she'd been in the weight loss industry. And she said, what are we going to do about people with eating disorders? And I said, we're not advertising for people with eating disorders. So we're not going to worry about that. And she goes, yeah, but if you're going to create a diet, there are people with eating disorders are going to come. And I go, well, if they come, let's just deal with it then. And so the funny thing is that people that are coming in with anorexia or bulimia don't often advertise that fact. Now we ask outright, but you know, yeah. they, we, and, but here's what happens. So many of them ended up writing to us and they go, um, I'm not anymore. Mm. And we never once talked about it. We never once talked about the horrible thing their daddy said to them or their horrible thing their teacher said. We never once got into the baggage of why they had the body issues in the first place. What we did was we got them hydrated, well-nourished and, and got the toxicity out of their life. And all of a sudden, the stuff that was causing the anorexia was no longer strong enough to do it on its own. Yeah. And we've seen this countless times. So if it can work on something as deep-seated as that, I, I really believe that the single biggest thing that people can do to improve their mental health and their general happiness is to improve their relationship with food. 
Yeah, I actually, I mean, I actually said to our coaching group this morning, I put up a video just to catch up. And I said, you know, my, my whole theory with Wildfoot was, you know, I've got my divorce program and I was going to slip it in as one of the, one of the eight fund foundation. I was like, you know what, I'm actually going to lead with it because if you lead with that and people want the value out of the other seven, you know, framework, I got, it's just, if you lead with this, it's going to take care of 95% of the problems. Right. And then the other stuff is the value add, but it was, it's just like I, such I would a huge say- impact. I would say you should be, you, you potentially should be using it both ways because I can tell you right now, you know, having gone through that process myself more than I would have liked to, you know, I, what I can tell you is this, that um, the, you know, neuroplasticity um, means that when you start having the same thought over and over and over again, that thought becomes entrenched and it becomes tracked. So, so somebody goes through a really yucky split up and divorce. There are a lot of fear thoughts that they keep having. And part of the like time doesn't heal all wounds if you keep thinking the same thing all the time because then it just entrenches the wound deeper and deeper what's really crazy though is that when somebody is really well nourished well hydrated well rested when all that stuff's happening the brain has a much more plastic response to that and it makes it much easier to change your thoughts mm. so uh, you know I, i've got a, a friend who does divorce coaching and that kind of stuff in the uk she does fabulous work sarah davidson she's incredible and, um, and one of the things we've talked to her about, and she's done occasionally is she'll do like a webinar to introduce her mostly, I think most of her clients are women to introduce them to, Hey, this is a great time for a reset. Yeah. Let, let's, let's, let's begin a new leaf here by changing our relationship with food. And guess what? They think they're coming in because it'll make them feel more attractive or they'll be able to fit into clothes nicer. And all. Like, of course they think that what they don't get is that they're going to feel better. What they don't get is they're going to be happier. Awesome. Okay, mate. Thank you so much again for your time. Let's just wrap. Let's put a bow on this thing. Uh, very importantly, we need to discuss the Wildfoot Kite Week, um, where I, I will I will be attending. That we need to host somewhere in the world when it opens up again. Well, I'll tell you what. If you can be in Zanzibar on uh, February eleventh to about fifteenth, I'm going to try to find kiting if it's there. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know what? I have an Australian passport now, so I don't need visas. So this is dangerous. Yeah, but if you're if you're in South Africa, I know you'd be there. But Australia is a bit far to Tanzania this time, I think. That's nah, fine. Man. I'll, I'll, just, I'll, put, I'll put a friend with a plane, right? Don't you? Ah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, it's a small plane, though. Won't get there. So, um, once once again, thanks for your time. I just 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 a closing thought from from you to everyone. I mean, I know it's a crazy time. I don't really want to go down the COVID rabbit hole. We, you know, in terms of immune systems and all the things that are so important, but. For anyone that's that's on the fence, that's kind of sitting to this, listening to this, trying to do the research about changing their health, I know from my heart that it's 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 everything, right? It's the it's actually everything. What would you say to the person that's sitting on the fence about you know taking that next step? Or I think also very importantly, someone who's tried everything and and wants you know is doesn't want to try one more thing. And I was one of those people, so. Yeah, we have so many clients that have written us. The opening line is, I swore I would never do another program. Thank God I tried one more. Yeah. And we have so many of those. So it's hard to have that conversation when somebody's given up. But one of the things that I would say to a client like that is that when you gave up, there were two types of faith that you lost. The one is you lost your faith in programs. And the other one is you lost your faith in yourself because the average diet is designed to hurt your, not intentionally, but the design of it is it effectively hurts your self-esteem and hurts your willpower. It's, they're dangerous. 
And so, you know, pretty much most people buy a diet or a book or what have you with just enough belief that it might work, that they're willing to slap the money down. But the truth is they have more doubt than belief. And, and they're right to, because they're, they're, most of them are structured based on rules and, and no psychology and they don't work. So one of the things that I say to people is don't worry, we've taken responsibility for both your actions and the program, because that's why we offer a money back guarantee. What, what diet on earth does that? No diet does, because can you imagine if diets offered money back guarantees? Like the industry would be bankrupt overnight, right? But we offer one and we offer one because we can. And, um, and so that, you know, when somebody has completely lost faith, that's one of the things that I'll refer to is, look, we'll take the risk for you here. You know, you, we have a money back guarantee. But the other thing is, is really like collect stories that speak to the value system of that person. So for example, on our website and on the Mind Valley Stories engine, there are some phenomenal stories. I mean, hundreds of phenomenal stories of people. So for example, if you have a client who, for example, needs to get his weight down so he can get to the next classification of helicopter, then what you want to do is go through the stories and look for stories where people have done that for sporting or for driving or what have you. Then you show them the stories that speak directly to what they, what the hole for them is. And then they're way more inclined to do it because it's, it, it, they, oh, that's what this is about. Everybody does a diet program for their own reasons. And while there are some macro reasons that are shared by many people, the truth is everybody does have their very own, almost unique approach for why they want to do a program. And if you can identify what somebody's unique want is and speak to that want, it makes it a whole lot easier. Brilliant. Eric, thank you once again so much for your time. I know you're a super busy man. Um, and thanks for bringing Wildfit to the world, man. It's, a, it's an honor to be hopefully soon part of your coaching team. And yeah, I'm just really, really looking forward to helping as many people as I can. I'm, I'm super glad to have you on the team. I, I love what you've done. I love your, your you, you got my attention with your kiting video. And, and you know, I do, I, let me just touch on the COVID rabbit hole for one second. Oh, go on. I, I'm going to just, all I'm going to say is this. I know there are people out there that deny that COVID exists. I'm not one of those people. I believe that it exists, but I believe that it is a generally weak virus that really is only as dangerous as it is because the population was so sick in the first place. Like when we now know that you are 10 times more likely to get seriously sick if you're obese or diabetic or, or, or you're hypertensive or any of that kind of stuff. And that for most of us that are, that are fundamentally healthy, it is safer to get COVID-19 than it is to commute to work for a year. Wow. That, that, that's the statistics. So if you now, now all of that said, what we now have to address is that, you know, we now know that this can happen and COVID isn't the last time it'll happen. I mean, the, the more people there are and the bigger the population gets, more, more of these things might happen. And so one thing I just want to say is this. There is now what I would argue to be incontrovertible proof that if you are healthy, this virus is almost harmless in 90. I know every now and again, the press is going to go tell you about the 34-year-old athlete one time. The press always wants to report at the extreme edges of the outliers, of, 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 at the extreme edges of the bell curve. But statistically, that's not the truth. And there's one more thing about that. Whether or not you are interested in vaccines, all I want to tell you is this. If you're not interested in taking a vaccine, I'm not going to judge you. You're, you make your decision. But then you really, really need to make sure that your immune system is operating optimally in every possible way. And secondly, if you are interested in taking a vaccine, the vaccine will only work if you are at optimal health. Like you need to do the best you can to get your immune system working so that the vaccine can do what it's meant to do. So what, whichever path you want to go on, the first defense is getting your relationship with food right. And then you can figure out whether you want to take the next defense. That's a perfect note to close on. Thanks so much, Matt. Clint, thanks very much. Hope to, hope to kite with you soon. 
absolutely. Wait, one last thing. Have you ever been here? I can't remember if I asked you. Have you ever been I, here? I have not been there. You I'm understand still- this is Mecca of kiteboarding. I'm still waiting for my invite, mate. Well, come on down. I'm, I'm home all through, all through March. So if you're, if you're looking for some kiting, you should come on. The kiting gets good here from March right through till about November. And then it's still good the rest of the year. <laughs> yeah, so I've, I've got to, I said to you, a mate of mine, general manager at Nomotu. And I, and I said to him, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come there and never leave. <laughs> he needs to be careful. I'll be the guy who lives in the shed at the back. There are so many. I am one of those. I came here for three days. Within three days, I'd put my house in Turks on the market and I'd, and I'd leased a place here and I, was, and I moved. That's and so ma- especially now with COVID, so many people came here to get away from America and now they're looking for property. It's like the new, it's the new place to be. So, so do you, come for a visit. Absolutely. Last question. Very important sure. stuff. But do you ride strapless in the waves or what are you on a 20? I, I ride a twin tip. I, okay. I, I, um, I've never ridden a surfboard again because I like jumping so much and I, yeah. I've, I, I've never, but I, I'm kind of tempted now. One of the issues is, is that I was like tempted right away to go to surfboard. I'm like, you know what? There's still so much for me to learn. Like I'm a relatively good kiter. I can jump, I can transition, but there's some things that I can't yet do. Like I, I'm not comfortable jumping and spinning in the air. I just, I, I you know, I, I'm not, I, and I, and you know, like one thing I can occasionally do if I happen to get the timing right is a jump train, like a, um, a hovering transition. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, you know, as long as I can't handle that stuff yet, I still have so much to learn that I'll, I'll wait till I've kind of exhausted learning on the, on the twin tip. Then I'll move to a surfboard maybe. Okay. So I'll tell you what, when I come, when I come over there, I'll, t- I'll get you strapless in the waves. Because that's all right. Let's happens. let's let's go for it. And by the way, here's I, I just want you to know. Here's the kite trip you and I'll do when you get here. We are, we yeah. will hire a car, yeah. and they will drive us about forty minutes up the coast from my house. Yeah, we will uh, crash in through the bushes. We will pump up our kites. We yeah. will launch. The car will take the 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 the, the, the pumps back, and there and we done. And then we will downwind for two hours. Done and. And about halfway through the downwinder, we will arrive at Laboka, which is a river mouth. And you can kite into the river and then kite on the flat water in the river for an hour or two. And then you kite all the way down until you literally come into, you come right to my backyard in Kite Beach. We land on the beach and we sit and have a rooibos tea on the deck. That's the deal. With an alkadizer. Sure. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Thanks I'm actually Good booking my flight now. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Cheers, man.